another episode of the SASMA podcast. Today, we are honored to have recorded a session with our Springbok medical team, who played a vital role in the Springboks winning their back-to-back World Cups. Today, we have Dr. Jerome Mampane, who is a sports physician and team doctor for the Springboks, Renna Naylor and Dr. Anion Robain, who are the Springbok physiotherapists, and Andy Edwards and Tim Kumbu, who make up the athletic performance department for the Springboks. I managed to get them all together after their whirlwind trophy tour and chat around their journey to the Springboks and some key takeaways from working in elite sports. We then end off with pulls of wisdom from all members of the team given to young doctors, physiotherapists, and strength and conditioning coaches who are interested in getting involved in team sports. We hope you enjoy this recording, and I hope you find it inspiring. So thank you all for being with us. It's obviously a privilege to have the medical and athletic performance team from the Springboks. Obviously, you guys are super busy at the moment, just coming off the trophy tour and sort of we're just chatting a little bit about everyone getting back into normal work again. And so, yeah, thank you all so much for just giving us the opportunity of having you guys on this podcast. I think like we've chatted previously, this podcast almost just tries to highlight highlight your work within the team because often the medical and performance side is the background. We, in teams, we often be background staff and I thought it'd be quite a nice platform to just to highlight your guys' work within the team. So firstly, I just want to start off. So obviously we've got Dr. Jerome Ampane, who's the team doctor. We've got Anurin Rabain, who's, I guess, Dr. Anurin Rabain as well. We've got Renee Naylor, who's the physios. And then we've got Andy Edwards and Tim Kumbu, who form part of the athletic performance. So we've got two, we've got two arms of the medical team. We've got sort of medical with doctors and physios, and then we've got the athletic performance with Tim and Andy. So from your guys' side, I mean, how does obviously that link is very important because that link forms the link between player welfare to the coaches. So how do you guys see that link between athletic performance and medical? And how do you guys work synergistically with each other to obviously ensure player welfare? Well, firstly, Tinesh, thanks for having me and, and I guess the other guys, I'm sure they'll say thank you too, but pleasure to be here. I think the, the two departments, obviously, I think the biggest thing is we're serving the players. They're at the forefront and we're trying to ensure that they're consistently sort of selectable and ready to play. And I guess from the athletic department, performance side it's to make sure that they're well conditioned enough in a a holistic athletic point of view to make sure they can do what the coaching team need need from them on on, on the pitch tactically and and obviously to do it for 80 minutes if needed so Mm. I I, I guess I see why I'm here to make sure that the team performance from a physical point of view in terms of our synergy with the medical team I guess it's pretty vital myself and Doc sit alongside each other to make sure that yes, we're nicely in sync to ensure there's a consistent message to the coaches about, uh, about player status. Mm-hmm. So so myself and Doc would, would probably talk the most around the player list, if you like, the planning side of things. And, and myself and Doc would be in the coaches' meetings to make sure there's, again, there's good synergy there going up to the head coach and the DOR and, and the rest of the coaching team. So I think... I'll give it a fairly short one because I want other people to talk, but the the most important thing is our synergy of the understanding and there's a common goal of, okay, where's where are we going in, in a planning format? What do the coaches need? And and can the players de- deliver that? Obviously, if they can't, the, the classic issue is someone's injured. So that I guess it might go a little bit deeper into the ins and outs of what might be happening in that player's return to play process and then naturally a crossover between departments to make sure, again, that they can end up delivering what the coaching team need out of them when they play. So it was a bit of a snapshot, but Doc, you, you go on your part. Yes, thanks, Andy. Uh, thanks, everyone. I think, I think you've summed it up there quite well. There, there must be good synergy and good harmony in terms of the message that's A, being sent to the player and the message that's been sent to the coaches. So the two departments are married, no matter mm. where which way we look at it, intricately woven. Because you almost need to be you need to be able to actually look at the player and be able to say, "Listen, is this a from a medical perspective? Is it a, a complete exclusion from training? And if it is, 
what does that mean for next week? What does it mean for the coming weeks? And if it's not a true exclusion from training, but maybe there are, there are modifications and there's value that, that can be derived from the player in terms of from a training perspective, I think then you almost need to have even closer conversations about how you can actually achieve that. That's where it becomes quite challenging. I mean, we've had a number of cases of those where you know, a lot of good work is done by the physios and you take a player that, that actually is carrying long-term niggles and you get quite a strong performance out because there's, you know, there's just good synergy and understanding of how to manage him where he is and actually get the best uh, performance out of him and the, uh, get him as well-conditioned as possible uh, for him to produce the best performance he can. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, uh, Jerome and Andy, you guys both touched on the, the return-to-play process. I mean, how do you guys manage that within the team? And probably this will sort of more tie in with what you've said, Jerome, and then Rene and Anurin will obviously form part of that. And then Andy, Tim will come in towards the end. But I mean, how do you guys manage that RTP process in your setup? Yeah, for me, I feel that as a medical team, well, first, thanks, Janesh, for having us on your podcast, is always to offer the coaches their first option in terms of selection. And that's our vision, that 80% of the time they'll be able to do that. Mm. And in that way, we, we would see ourselves as successful as a medical setup. And obviously, that means managing and preventing the injuries and needles and more with regards to Tim and Andy, enhancing the performance of the players on the pitch. And I think we always have to speak with one voice when we when the information leaves our setup to the coaches. And we are allowed different approaches. And that goes to managing players, preventing injuries, and return to play or return to performance with the player being the center of our, our team that we're looking at the player's well-being. And when it leaves our setup, it's one voice. And that's why it's nice that we have Andy and Jerome with the coaches that can relay that. And it's not seven people giving different messages to the coach, coaching staff, but that we discuss it, have different opinions and work plan. And every player is different. So I don't think it's a textbook copy and paste that this is how this player is going to return to play. I think we work it out depending on the player's injury and on how, how that player manages himself and what his demands will be in the game. And that is then taken to the coaching staff. Thanks, Renee. And you Hey, Janesh, uh, thanks again to be on the call. I think all of them have covered quite a bit. I'm in agreement. I think we're all one team. The main thing is just to share the information, even you as a physiotherapist or SNC coach, that, that we all share our information because we all can give input and contribute. We almost speak into one voice, although we sometimes will differ. But the thing is to have that common point for the player. And then regarding your question regarding return to play, I think it always starts with a good diagnosis. We go from medically and then you know, have a return to play date and work, work backwards We want to go and then have different markers in that plan, what the player needs to achieve to get to return to play. Again, it will take a team effort. All of us have certain skills and, and knowledge and it's good that we all sit and plan together with the player at the forefront. Yeah, Thanks, Janesh. Tell me anything from your side? No, thanks so much, Janesh. Thanks for having us on the podcast. And I think my colleagues have said a mouthful. So it's just that alignment and that communication channels within the setup. Again, with the different uh, expertise around and the different views, different experience in terms of certain things, uh, just sharing that information amongst ourselves, sometimes a little bit robust, but to make sure that message just uh, relates to the coaches all as one and in unison. Yeah, and Ren, I like what you said there in that, from a medical perspective, I think one of the key KPIs is actually giving the coaches a selectable, healthy team as often as possible. I actually like the way you put it. It's actually quite a nice, it's a nice framework when people often ask sort of from a medical perspective, like, what do you do? Because obviously we manage injuries, but in the greater scheme of things, I think from a medical perspective, this specific team sitting here as well, the big goal and the, the greatest challenge is trying to get injured players back, but also to be able to give the coaching staff their players that are healthy and making sort of the best team on the day selectable. So yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for that there. So I just want to take a bit of a step back now. Again, like I said, this podcast, we part of this is also just to expose the younger professionals that are coming into sports medicine, physiotherapy or sports physiotherapy, 
strength and conditioning and just expose them to what's being done at the highest level, but also just to share your journey into your position at the moment. So I'd like to just take a step back, and this is obviously for each one of you, is what has been your journey to getting to where you are? I know, I mean, myself and Tim have walked a bit of a road, myself and you're in, Jerome's been a mentor in the space, being with the box for a prolonged period of time as well. Rene, again, Rene is somebody that I always heard about. I think, Ren, you were always a little bit ahead of me when I was at sort of province. And even when I joined SA Rugby, you've been at the Springboks. So just share your guys' journey that you've taken to, to be here. Let's go Andy. And the reason I'm going to say Andy is, so for some background, Andy was obviously at Saracens for 15 years and was involved with the RFU. So my specific actually to you, Andy, is did you always envision yourself being part of the Springbok setup? Obviously coming from the UK. And yeah, what is your journey to getting to the Springboks and where you are now? I'll, I'll try and be quick so you can go around the table. I, I, I guess the short answer is when you're working in England and I first started, I mean, it, I, I guess it's a no because you didn't expect to be living in South Africa and working for the box. Not to say you didn't think you were going to maybe do something more with your, your career if it went well, but like in, in that stage, it's just sort of head down and, and, and learning and developing and all the rest of it. Hopefully, like, everyone's trying to do when they first start so luckily i mean i am about to go into my 19th season in professional sport of snc when i first started for, for saracens i ran the academy and development system for four years so that's um working with teen year olds to 21 year olds the i know the academy systems in the uk are different and we get to actually recruit players a lot earlier and work within schools and and, and counties from like i said 13 and up so that was a good platform and give a really good foundation and our understanding of of putting schedules together, running pre-seasons with a junior group at different stages throughout their earlier careers and whilst they're still at school. Then I went on to be a, a senior S&C coach, basically an assistant role, if you like. That sort of dovetailed with five years of a, in a consultancy role with the RFU when I helped with the England Saxons team, which again was a nice thing to do on the side because you got to do travel and work within a smaller international environment and then for six years six years I was the head of SNC for the last three years it was a more of a performance role where I was overseeing SNC medical nutrition and the academy so that was how it got me to 2020 before I got a phone call to to come work with the Springboks so that's the journey in short. No thanks so much Andy. Renee? Okay, I'm listening. I'm going to summarize. So I've been calculating in my head and I've been working as a physiotherapist now for 30 years. And I've obviously been with the Springbok since 2008. And prior to that, I did three years that I was just working in general practice and in state service. At my time, there was no Zoom a year. There was no internship. And I did 10 years of working in rugby before I actually got the Springbok position of which Three years was at club level in Mitchell's Plain, and then seven years at the Stormers. Well, not at the Stormers, at the under. I started at under 19 and very excited when I got my first job at a professional team. Mm. And from then on, from the under 19 team, working my way to the senior team. But my message to young professionals would be don't be scared to work at club level because that's where you learn a lot. I, and it's a, a nice environment because I could play dietitian, don't eat chip rolls before a game. I could advise them on, we, at that stage, we were big on the bleep test. So it was amazing that you could do a bleep test and show the coach how to do it. And you're involved in warm-ups and cool-downs and everything at that level. And you learned so much. And that was also the time I was doing my master's. And it was a, a very exciting time. I think that also, young people should be patient because it did take 10 years. A lot of people think it's just mm. you quickly you're in a position with a national team. Mm. And it's not something that I expected as a female that they would take a, a female at the national setups. I was very happy at the Stormers at that stage designing our HPC. And it was quite a surprise and, and obviously a pinnacle of my career when I was offered the opportunity to work with the Springboks. Jerome? Gee, thanks, Tanesh. <laughs> Usually the long-winded one, Bruce. I don't know. I know. That's how I thought I started it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, man. Thanks. I 
think there were maybe the easier way to just say this. I'd looked for the Springbok job, I think from geez, 2010. And there were visible targets that you try and put in place to get yourself there. You write down what you think will work and then you plan accordingly. And hopefully along that point, just like a rear plan, you hope you hit those markers. And I don't know, for me, sometimes these things are hard because I don't know religious things, but I can't change it from what it's been for me, which is like a fake journey because mm. some things it's not like my doing. Like, I mean, it doesn't even feel like my doing, but you just, there's no ways you can happen to be in the right place at the right time so many times. It's just weird. So I started, I wanted to become Springbok team doctor, I think only in around 2010. That's when I actually thought about that. I actually wanted to be a bulldog. And then from there, I know I started with the women's teams. And for me, maybe like club level, that's where Renan Namura learned. For me, the best learning was in women's rugby. I think you make a crap load of mistakes. You learn from those mistakes sometimes. Sometimes players suffer a little bit, if not a lot. And I think moving on, I'd gone to actually join the junior Springbok team. That's where I met Anurin, met some of the current Springboks, I think, in, in 2014. And from that progression, two years later, I'd find myself as a Springbok team doctor. And if you look at the circumstances around that, I still, I don't know, my bro, I, I can't put a finger and say I did something super spectacular because it's only two years later that I, I'm Springbok team doctor. But then a year later, I get booted out. And then a year later again, then I'm back again. Some of these things, you, you try and understand how they came to be, but um, I've decided I must write a book and actually put it inside there. So I'm saving it for the book. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to the book, <laughs> Jerome. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, I started off in within SA Rugby and Women's Rugby as well. And I think I may have, I mean, I came in when Women's Rugby just re-entered the stage from basically the 2014-2018 break. And I agree with yeah. you that the women's game is just the learning potential there is, yeah, it's off the charts. There's just so much you can learn. And Tim's, that's where myself and Tim met. There's so much learning that can be done at that level. So, yeah, but Jerome, looking forward to that book then. Keen to hear more about your story. Okay, 100%. So, yeah, my, what happened, yeah? My journey started in 2009. Up until 2012, I was at the Free State Sports Science Institute. So I started work after Ren was already with the box, if I have it right, Ren. <laughs> the scary. beauty of what... <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, the thing is about the Free State Sports Science Institute was that you had to deal with multiple codes. At some stage, you're doing judo in the morning, and then later on, there's table tennis players, Free State players coming through that you have to take care of. So. A great spot and a great place to learn about programming, periodizing, and adapting as you go along. Lots of facets to it. And we had many professionals there. So from physiotherapists right through to team, to doctors and, and so forth. In between that time, operated in the rugby circles in Vosky Field and Vosky Cup for the different universities in the free state. And yeah, we get to meet a lot of players who are now semi-professionals. They just got some of their first contracts. And you get to learn about dealing with, yeah, with so-called professional players for the first time. Went back to study. So quit everything, dropped the ball and said, listen, need to study further because the dream was really to hopefully attain uh, a Springbok Colors. If anything, get to super rugby level at the time. Left Bloemfontein, where one had established themselves a little bit, <laughs> and then went to Pochestrum, went to the Puck, which I must say was a great time that I spent there for just two years. Short-lived while working Kari Kapana 21 with the Leopards. Then SA Rugby called. SA Rugby actually called the end of 2017 for the first tour with the women's game. Like you mentioned, Janesh, there was that period where there was a break since the 2014 World Cup. And then I began there and me and you sort of got, started getting acquainted from mm -hmm. that moment onwards. So from 2018, started SA Rugby with the women's team. And I can't echo what you guys said enough in terms of the women's game, because that was a first for me, having worked with female, male, different sporting codes before. But in the rugby space, it was my first. And a lot of learnings that, that, that happened there about oneself as well. And then obviously about the player and the practice. Uh, met Jerome around that time. 
Doc, you call it the time you were booted out. So yeah, around that time, we met with Jerome and I obviously learned a lot from him in terms of the experiences of being at the highest level. And that that sort of set my mind, sort of helped me in terms of my mental state, in terms of should one be able to get there, what sort of things to expect and be cautious of, but still come with an open mind. So my advice, and then I'm, I'm blessed enough to have been with the Springboks since 2020 up until this stage as the sports scientist or the, call it the data analyst, for lack of a better word as well, because I'm in a different role to what I've been, I had been doing up until 2020, which is conditioning players. And like Ren mentioned, doing all the roles at some unions, you have to do physio, dietitian semi-team doctor, etc. But for the first time, I was uh, the SNC out and I've really been blessed and enjoyed myself and working with the colleagues that I've got. I think I'm very fortunate. So much expertise coming from all over the world and yeah, challenging myself into becoming one of the best that they can possibly be. So my advice to anyone in the space, especially SNCs coming up and just studying or finishing up their studies is just Avail yourself for as many roles as possible or in terms of club. Right now, we've got schools that have SNCs. I know the pay is not always good. It won't maintain everything that you have to do. But I think all those years of availing oneself and making sure that you learn at grassroots level have actually assisted and they come in very handy when you get to the senior level. And having someone as a soundboard, you can have one, you can have two. I've got one mentor in Proteric who fortunately was also with the Springboks. As I've mentioned, Jerome has definitely been one of those since I met him in 2018. And then Janesh, my journey with yourself has been one special one as well. So avail yourself and try and get some sort of soundboards. They can be different ones that you really trust. They can tell you the truth uh, in and amongst all the hype and all the noise that may come around with some of the senior roles. But yeah, that's my story, Doc. In summary, thanks. No, thanks so much, Tim. Yeah, I think just already listening to Jerome, Rene, Andy, and yourself, Tim, I think one thing that's obviously all running parallel between all four, and I'm sure Leah and Aniran's story, I mean, I know Aniran also started at Borland, and there's going to be a parallel type of story there as well, is that you need to take those opportunities. And I think now Varsity Cup is obviously a big opportunity for people to become a part of because it's almost a semi-professional, it's quite a high level of rugby that people are playing your club level, Rene, like you mentioned as well. So I think that's, it's a massive parallel that I'm seeing with all the stories that opportunities were taken and eventually accumulated to this opportunity where you guys joined the Springboks. And Aaron, can you share your story? Hey, Janice, I think you actually summarized it quite nicely there. Um, for me, I always will say the main thing is just to get involved and put yourself out there because you mostly hear your, your jobs and opportunities when you're in the field. And for me, I started as a physio studying community rugby. I live in Ida's Valley, so I got involved in Coronations Rugby rugby Club. And as a young professional, I worked at Pineal Villages in Western Province in Rosie United. And that all forms you as, as a physio and as a person. My first provincial came in 2006, working with but first with the juniors uh, for four years part-time while I was working in a private practice and then moved on for another four years with the Poulan Cavaliers. 20, 2011 to 2014. I was fortunate to get invited to do the junior Springboks from 2011 to 2016. And I think that is where you get a taste of international rugby and high performance elite areas. And that is where probably the dream started to be a physio for the Springboks. And the Stormers started in 2016 and then the pop call up in 2020. So this is a brief of how my journey was from club, provincials, super rugby, to the spring box. And Janice, the beauty of all of this is that, that some players that you work now at national level, you've got to know early in your career. Mm-hmm. Like a simple example, like a Billy Leroux in 2011, when I was at Bolan Cavaliers, second division Premier League, Curry Cup, winning that league with guys like Billy, Bola, Conradi. Later on, you meet him again, even at the junior spring box in 2011 with the Sias, the Evans, and the Bongis. You get to them, to know them nine years later. So that is a beauty of, of our game. As I say, get involved. You never know where you, where, how the circle is going to go, even with coaches and uh, administrators. Mm-hmm. Some people I met on a Saturday at Pinal Villages, you met at the Stormers or at Roses, you met at the Springboks. So 
that journey, it's, it's, it's a nice way to have and you meet the people along the way. And again, maybe later. So that's me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. And again, I think you've just re-emphasized the fact that I think everyone started at sort of grassroots levels and Andy was the same in England, is that everyone sort of started at grassroots level, grassroot levels and built up to the point of senior rugby. And I think, again, it's probably a bit of a misconception that everyone, again, within this setup here probably looks at guys like a Jerome, a Rene, I mean, each one of you and probably thinks that, Chish, you guys just got this, got this job off the bat and they, they don't understand all the years before that where you've actually, and, and you're in, like you said, where you've developed as a physio from a grassroots level the same way a player would to get to this point. And I think that just makes you a smarter, more competent professional. So thank you. Thank you all for sharing those, those stories. I think it's important for our listeners to just have some context before we sort of get, get into the nuts and bolts of it, just to get some context as to how you guys have gotten into this position. So Jerome, now I've got some specific questions. Uh, first one's for you. So speak to us through your process of being the Springbok team doctor in terms of how you manage injuries, what makes this environment challenging? And I know you obviously, you work at, you, you still work at sort of different levels. I know you, you're still involved with Varsity Cup. You were working in football. How does this environment differ to, to those environments? Jerome? Look, I don't think there's a first, maybe if I can go in reverse order. For okay. me, oh, rugby medicine is probably the best learning medicine, mm. I think, in sports medicine for me. Mm. I think the only other thing that might be slightly better is when you do multi-coded events, mm. then you get exposed to like pretty much everything. I mean, you go to region five, not like the special stuff, not like Olympics where it's like whatever, like you go to region five, like where you don't have anything, like it's you and you can't trust that the, the MRIs or the CT scanners yeah. and whatever works and your clinical diagnosis, your clinical input has to make sense. Mm. That for me, those experiences have been quite key because they just help make you a better understanding doctor. And then in it, what I learned was when you work in places like Region 5 or the African Games, your understanding of a team approach gets better. It starts not being about, yeah, the doctor's just doing this. You start understanding that everyone has a role. There's complete space for everyone in the sun to shine. Mm-hmm. And in them, that input allows you to you know, it allows you to better service an athlete, especially with the time pressures that you get in those multi-coded events. Then you take that into a rugby environment, especially the spring box. And it's an interesting one, right, where you have an environment where technically players can just be changed, not on a whim, but pretty rapidly. If injury is going to be deleterious to your performance, there are other strong players because it's a national setup. There are other strong players waiting to just be called up and brought in. And maybe they might not be at the same level as necessarily the guy that's injured. But you start, you try and make plans that make sense. You try and see if within the certain time frames, can you push those boundaries? Can you extend yourself a little bit more? Can you try and force a, a positive outcome, sports medicine outcome for a certain athlete? Mm. And the, the buy-in that you have from your physios, from your SNC and athletic performance staff, that buy-in is when you put it together and you're able to present that to the coaching staff, it becomes very difficult to sort of, I don't know, argue against or put it aside because you look at timelines and you look at your history of what you've done with athletes and that that starts making sense to you guys as a collective. Mm. But very much what has been clear for me or what I think Cinderella tried to make sure that I, I grasped from the word go was that it, it always has to be a team approach. And if you have that clarity about a team approach and then within it, you're able to respect each other's roles and understand that there's a purpose to someone being there. There's a value that they add and you can try and see beyond yourself and grow and understand and look at what value they add. I think you allow people to bring out their best and that best can translate into players actually coming out with excellent outcomes or even being able to complete World Cup sometime. Mm. No, Jerome, thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the multi-code events and again, it's just such a strong theme of grassroots. I mean, Region 5, again, is the gra- grassroots within Saskok. And again, people always ask, how do you get to the Olympics? And they don't realize you need to start off 
at your Region Five game. Yeah, bro, they, they miss out on on the good stuff. Like, mm. yeah, it's cr- it's crap. You're sleeping on some floor with like getting there on the day, and the accommodation is still being built while you guys are there. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is crap. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, but once it begins, for me, that was just like like women's rugby, women's under twenty rugby. Mm. You just you learn, man. You learn, you get better, you trust each other, your bonds with the people you're with get better. Exactly. I mean, with Anurin, for example, in 20, 2014, we had tough cases. And I mean, that's a very different environment. That's more, when you're in the junior box, the expectations are a lot higher than women's rugby. But those cases that you have and the learnings that you take, and then you get freaking Sinde's Moses injuries, a lot of them all at once, and you mm. must just deal with them. Mm. And you must figure out how to deal with them you must figure out how to freaking strap them. Are you going to try and get the player through by finding some sort of way to mask the pain and reduce the pain? I mean, freak. When you come out and you've had those discussions and you've had those plans and you've either executed them and done well with it or failed and gotten burnt as well, why are you failing? I don't know. I think you come out better. You come out different. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. And again, it, it it teaches you just to to trust the trust the team that's around you, and, yeah. and trusting their process. And it just builds a better bond between all of you, and that that good bond then translates into the into the greater team, which again is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andy, my next question is for you. So we chatted briefly about this last week, and I think I mean it was quite a good conversation for me, which is why I wanted to bring this up today. Is the fact that, I mean, within the Springbok setup at the moment, we've got players playing in about, I think you mentioned about five different countries at several unions. So speak to us and just speak to the listeners about what your role is in managing these loads across the board, obviously to the point that they don't get to your international blocks fatigue. And why is it obviously important that the player, so we chatted a little bit about the player match load being capped. Can you chat a little bit around that there as well? Yeah, definitely. And you're right, it's an interesting conversation because it's probably not something that's gone into that much. Mm. Obviously, my role within the Springboks is full-time, so it's an, an annual cycle job to, I guess, make sure you're in line with the coaches. And then, then there's obviously a lot of planning involved um, building up into each campaign, although they're in isolated periods for five or six months. It's actually a lot of prep work and the 2024 has already sort of started in terms of framework stuff, otherwise you miss the boat. So there's a a reason for the, I guess, the full-time nature of it. But the other reason is relating to Matt, as you said. I mean, the Springboks team is pretty unique. I think other than Argentina, I think when I look around at the other nations in, in the globe, it's got the, the vast majority of players or roughly 50% of the players playing globally and the other 50% roughly are playing in South Africa. Don't quote me on those facts because they do change mm. based on obviously squad selection and squad sizes. So it does change. But if you want to sign to put a number on it, it's roughly that. Uh, as you said, there's five different countries at the moment. We're taking Springbok players in force from South Africa, Japan, France, UK and Ireland. So it, it's an interesting one because you essentially you don't have say in what happens when a player goes to uh, play over, uh, overseas. So if a player goes and plays in the UK, for example, or you play in England in the Premiership, he forms part of their collective agreements between the PRL and the RPA, which is the league itself, and the their version of my players, which is the Rugby Players Association. So immediately they fall into that. They have their regulations, their game caps, their rules, and then they can only be released in what's Regulation 9, which is the international window when they can come into the Springbok environment. So in essence, you don't have say on the game load and what's going on within those seasons. And you just have to trust that you can build a relationship with the clubs. So for example, myself would speak to performance staff, obviously Doc would speak to the medical staff, mm. and then me and the coaches would speak to their coaching team and on an annual cycle, we'll normally do a visit to, to try and get to one of the countries to do club visits. So you can build a relationship via us and the Springbok management and the coaching group to their club, individual clubs. Obviously, you can speak to the players themselves and it becomes their responsibility and ownership to drive their own planning and mapping of their season to make sure they, they try not to be what someone might say overplayed, whatever that is. 
And then each union would naturally build a relationship, which is one of Saru's jobs to make sure they uphold relationships across the globe. So that that's one thing. The, there's natural ways in which each uh, league or, or whichever country they're playing in does does different things to the Springbok or, or the international windows. So J- Japan at the moment happens to fit well because they play a certain amount of games in a certain time of the year and it doesn't intervene too much with the Southern Hemisphere International Tournament. Whereas the UK, the, the Premiership, and then the UK League and the French League, and now obviously the South African teams, which I'll get to in a sec, play in a Northern Hemisphere competition. So you're in a tricky space because you're, you're on a 12-month rolling season. So the global guys, essentially, you, you do as best you can. When they come into the Springbok environment, I guess then as a performance and medical team and a coaching team, it's down to us to make sure we do have appropriate plans in place to maybe have certain rest windows or deload windows. And that does happen naturally over an international cycle. Um, not so much in a, in a World Cup year, but definitely more in a, in, a, in a normal year where there's different respites, like I say, natural windows when they can deload and regenerate outside of competition. The South African players are slightly different because they form a different collective agreement and we have a, a say in player management, which is one of my responsibilities to to help and assist with that to make sure that, like I said, there's a, a regeneration window, which I would classify as rest and active rest. And that essentially means rest is allowing your body to do nothing physically unless they choose to. And there may be med- certain medical procedures that have to happen that the doctor will organise with certain specialists, and then there'll be a recovery process after that. And then after the rest period, they go into an active rest, which essentially means, listen, you're a professional athlete. You know you are returning to either preparation or competition. Therefore, you need to make sure you prepare your body in a way that you can enter that environment safely. So you basically need to start doing something. Where you do that, and and this is the key for me in rest windows, is it's not on a structured window. Mm. So it means that if I was, let's say, if I was working back at Saracens and a player was on active rest, I couldn't formally tell a player that he had to be in the gym at 7 a.m. and then in in this next meeting at 10 and lunch is going to be at 12.30 and so on. If the player is away with his family or wherever, whatever he's, he's doing, it could be done on their agenda but there will be some guidance either from the national setup or the club setup. And hopefully there'll be a collaboration between the two to make sure a player comes back into the, the preparation or competition phase properly. So that, that it is quite unique. Like I said, South Africa and, and Argentina are the most unique because they've got players playing across the globe and in their, uh, well, Argentina, not really even in their own country. So they have a different challenge to us, but it's something that needs to be sort of carefully looked at and, um, monitored throughout the annual cycle yeah and andy obviously now we players are now reintegrating into the union so i mean how do you advise them in terms of at which point they start integrating back into their unions in terms of structured training um so in this like i said world cup cycles are a little bit different like so we had to arrange a three for the teams for the guys playing in south africa there was a three-week mandatory rest period that was uh, negotiated with the franchises. That was obviously a shortened version because normally it's a minimum of eight weeks, which would be four weeks of rest and active rest and then four weeks of development. And that development period is, is a natural cycle which should for, which should come after the off-season, which is the rest period. In this, in this time after this World Cup, 2019 was different, but 2023, like we said, they're playing in Northern Hemisphere competition, which has already started during the World Cup. So... It was a matter of allowing them to 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 breathe, so to so to speak, and regenerate and, and, and go on holiday if they wanted to after a five month period in camp for two weeks, and then just have a, a week of active rest. So, you know, Doc obviously would have spoke to the franchises from a clinical medical point of view, and I would have spoken to them about the performance side of things, and then we would have spoke to the players in collaboration to make sure they're ready to go back into camp which was this week monday which would have been the end of the three weeks so there's always a conversation going on about like how that's going to be channeled and what's best for them to do because naturally after a long period of competition people are going to be at different points and maybe need to do certain things that wouldn't be right for someone else yeah no, andy thanks so much i think that just 
it, it also sort of highlights your role outside of the immediate campaign and your role when the guys at the union. I think it's quite important to note that these players are being monitored every day by you and you're always keeping tabs on them, which is obviously important and builds up to their peak performance as well. Rene, for you next. So my question to you, so you've been the longest serving member of the Springbok medical team. How have things changed since you started with the Springboks? Yes, Janesh, that's quite quite a mouthful, but I'm going to sort of summarize. So on, I'll start with the first level, which ties in with what Andy's just been speaking about, is that if you think back, 2010, playing Super Rugby, and in the 2012 season, we had 93 Super Rugby games and then the 12 Springbok tests in terms of just the rugby season. And then in 2022, we had moved up, you know, an increase of 30% in matches. So it was like 125 Super Rugby matches. Mm. And at the time, less than 10% of the players of the Springbok squad were actually playing in Europe as opposed to now. Mm. So the rugby scene has changed considerably in terms of the competition. And obviously now we're playing URC. But in 2022, we were monitoring 70 players for possible selection into the squad of which 36 of those players were playing for 20 overseas clubs. So when I started, we had two players playing overseas that you had to monitor overseas, whereas now there were not only, like Andy mentioned, five countries, but in each country there was different clubs. You'd have seven Japanese clubs or six French clubs and four UK clubs, which means that being able to monitor that that player in terms of, in in our cases, physiotherapists, their niggles, their injuries, their injury risk profiles, it's not as easy mm. because, and also their match time exposure, their training time, their methods are very different between the clubs. So that that is obviously a challenge. And we as a Springbok medical team, we're continuously striving. We want to maintain the highest standard of service delivery in terms of our injury management and our prevention and our recovery and treatment is still the cornerstone of our work. So we're wanting to look at Achieving this in the shortest space of time, where we come to the next important point, which is budget, which has obviously changed a lot. When I started in 2008, which was post the 2007 World Cup win, and there was less talk of budget restraints as we have now. And now I feel we that that is always a consideration. But I do believe as a medical team, we have to keep the pressure to get our piece of the cake and the pie. And But at the same time, we must hope and we must make it work. You mustn't, I don't think that there's a decrease in budget is an excuse. Mm. So we still push and we've been lucky like in this World Cup that we did get the equipment that we wanted, but it, it took more than a year or two yeah. <laughs> to actually get there. But we do get there. And I can say what has been really nice for me when we're thinking about we want to be innovative in our methods and constantly base everything on evidence-based medicine, then I think we've come a long way in that our medical team has expanded from just a physio, a doctor, and we didn't even have massage therapists that were assigned to the team. We would get massage therapists in every city that we were training and playing. Whereas we were very lucky and blessed to, which is not common in our rugby teams in South Africa, to have a dietitian working with us full time and to have Tim, a sports scientist, which has made a, a massive difference in terms of actually utilizing data. So that has been a positive that we, because I do believe that as you become an elite, as you move up, to an elite level or national team level, you want to become more specific in your role and less general. So you're not doing everyone's job as when you're at club level. And I believe that is the way we can actually offer the best service to the players and maintain their well-being. So while it's challenging for us to do injury risk profiles with so many players overseas, we have found ways around it. And as our mantra has always been that winners don't have excuses, winners find a way. Mm. 
So I don't think we must forget about the optimal level we want and continually strive for that. We, we still have to make it work with what we have. And I would like to say that we can be very grateful for the support we get from the medical teams at the franchise, how well they work with us. And I believe that comes with time, establishing those relationships, understanding how people work, trusting each other and how we work, because we are very dependent on their work with the players, because we only see the players for a short period of time and quite challenging because we don't have we don't often have a pre-season as we do have in a World Cup year. We don't often have that luxury. So I think those are the, the main differences. And obviously specific for the Springboks, I think our culture has changed a lot from 2008 to now. And that has also assisted us as a medical team because our culture is one of ownership. We're not spoon feeding players and doing everything for players, but everything is they have to take ownership for the their health, for their well-being, for their conditioning, for their fitness, for their injury risk profiles and taking responsibility for their prehab and coming to us and asking and understanding what they need to do to prevent their injuries and also to perform at optimal level. So that I think that's us summarized it, tried yeah. to summarize it. No, thanks, Rin. <laughs> and I think, I mean, just while you were chatting as well, I would realize that you, Jerome, and Anurin would have probably also been around when I think the drive for player welfare from World Rugby has really sort of started pushing the boundaries. And you guys would have probably been in that space where the HIA started getting implemented. Correct? I think that was about 2012. Yes, that's correct. How did that sort of change your guys' work on the field? Was that quite a seamless integration in the 2012 process when they obviously started bringing that like sort of rudimentary HIA process, which is now developed and got into what it is now? Was it quite a seamless sort of change into it, or was it a bit of a was it a bit of taxing to sort of get used to that system? I don't think I would use the word seamless. There were obviously challenges with it, which we worked through, and a lot of that is just having those conversations. I think when things change, people need to talk about it, and for players to understand, for coaches to understand, and for us to understand the actual methodology in in the process was important. And I think that is what makes it easier because players were not used to it and and change is always going to be some element of resistance. I think that if new things are introduced now, I think we understand that it has to start with education and it cannot just happen. Yeah, that's my take on it. 100%. Yeah, and I guess now we're sort of getting into that space of the instrumental mouth guards, which is again going to be Quite a big change, but Ren, like you said, I think education is key in terms of understanding why we're doing it, and I think that affects how well it can then be implemented on the ground. Thanks so much, Rene. And Ren, so again, for the listeners, um, just for them, just for some background there, so you are with the Stormers, you're the head physio of the Stormers, and you're also with the Springboks. So when we look at the team environments between a professional union playing at this point, sort of URC and at the union level, at the union level. is there yeah. a difference between, there a difference between the Springboks and the yeah. Stormers? So when you're with the box, can you feel sort of a tangible difference in that pressure to perform? Or would you say it's sort of about the same? Hey, thanks, Anesh. I think uh, for me, uh, I'll start from a personal view. It's good for me to work at the Stormers. I don't have a 7-1 split, but I've got a 7-5 split working seven months with the Stormers and then five months with the box. And the Stormers give me the opportunity to do the cold face stuff of daily treatments and conversations with coaches and feedback. And that keeps me up to date with the rugby fraternity. So no doubt for me, both environments want to achieve performance and winning mindset. But there's no difference in that. Both want to win. For me, the difference is the trophy. Mm. If you if we make it easy, when I'm honest with you. <laughs> So the Stormers will go for the URC, the European Champions Cup. And when you win the box, you want to win the Test Series, the Rugby Championship, and the pinnacle point in the past two years was winning the Rugby World Cup. Mm. So as a professional, for me, is to give the same world-class championship treatment or performance, even if you where you work. And that I always will tell the young professionals, as your previous question was, uh, doesn't one coach always told me give a tier one service even if you're working at a tier two nation? 
So I want to start there that you need to give your best irrespective of where you work. Regarding injuries, your question, pressure, you always want to make the right call and the right decisions. I do agree with you that there might be different pressure and different looking at injuries at franchise level and springbok level. When you had the Stormers or the franchise, you've got this core group of players maybe where the coach always wants on the field. So they will probably do some compromise uh, regarding adapting their training or going for the 80 or 90% player above the 100% player. With the box, you always want to feel the player at 100% and you want the player to train. And the pressure is for us as a legal team to make sure that box player can operate at 100%. So that is where I would say that will be the, the difference practically. And we want you to share the two experiences. And no doubt for me, the spring box are the pinnacle. As any player and as any coach who has medics, always want to work for the spring box. And the difference is not always a mindset, but it's sometimes the resources and the practical side of things. And the second point I'd like to be in the difference between the two is with the Stormers, you've got a franchise, you've got a long season, you deal with long-term injuries and planning and players that don't play. And with the box, is high pressure, yes, for a very short time and mostly have, have at fit players. And the Springboks, you're in a bubble. Life happens, but you can maybe shift it away a little bit. But we're in the franchise, you still have traffic. <laughs> you still have load shedding. And so with the Springboks, things is a little bit easier to do your work, but the mindset is the same. You give your best service, and there's a winning mindset and performance. Thanks, Janesh. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, thanks for that answer. Uh, thanks for that answer. Tim, lastly with you, so... Speak to us a little bit about your role at the Springboks in terms of the data you collect. How does that assist the team? And obviously, you would then you work closely with with Andy in terms of that data. And then, how would you guys then, or how would you specifically translate these metrics to the coaches to a point that they can understand what you're looking at? Yeah, thanks, Janesh. I think on your first part of your question in terms of the data that we collect and why it's important, I think it's almost to give an objective measure to the things that my colleagues have mentioned, like the load, the training load. And we're fortunate enough to be able to do this on a daily basis, to be able to monitor those players on a daily basis. We're able to track them live as well, so that during training, myself and Andy and sometimes the medical team would be looking out for maybe a particular player or for the team. And we can definitely do that while we train, and that assists us a lot so that if any adaptation needs to be made through the head of performance with Andy or through Doc, things can be relayed to the coaches in the immediate or to the player. And then in terms of how we translate these matrices, there's quite a few matrices that we are able to, to collect, but between myself and Andy, there has been a certain number, so about 14 matrices that we look at, and those are done on a daily basis weekly basis and those metrics relaying them to the coaches is a message that Andy would usually relay to the coaches as mentioned him and Doc would be sitting with the coaches in the meetings I'm 90% of the time able to be there as well but these metrics to relay them to the coaches I've seen that the process hasn't been too challenging because most of our coaches have been in a professional setup for quite a bit I mean, just a simple example of maybe our head coach, Jacques, being a physio before and having been in the conditioning space, I think that that allowed that message to be easier to, to relay in terms of specific things and certain things that they're looking out for a player or what we're looking out for from a player. So it's been an, a very challenging one, Janesh, that I might mention. Collecting data in the past, I used to receive data mm. and we wouldn't utilize it the maps so even with the women's team or when i was with the junior box i was fortunate enough to have support from say uh, mr vireni mari who sits at, at SA rugby that assisted us a lot with with getting information still does but this information wasn't yeah it was difficult to to translate it or relay it in a way that can utilize it on a daily basis so currently with the live system as i mentioned it's down to being able to adjust certain things for a particular player perhaps or training group can be adjusted on the fly on the day and there's an objective measure that they can quantify the why and it's only one component 
it's not the be all and the end all. A lot of conditioning coaches ask me, if I'm at school, if I'm at varsity and we don't have GPS, what can we use? And that's the beauty that Jerome Enyaran and everyone I think on this call has mentioned about being at grassroots, grassroots level is that you get to now start gauging in terms of what your load looks like, you get to quantify what you can quantify and you utilize that accordingly. So when you do get more information, it just substantiates what you've already, already experienced. And I like the saying in our team about letting the main thing stay the main thing. The numbers will not always speak to the rugby quality. And I think that is essentially what we want. The medical team has spoken about having the player on the field. That's number one. We want the player on there being able to exert himself fully. And we also want them not to focus on the numbers. That's our job to do. And managing them, they need to focus on the rugby and the instructions from a technical perspective of them being able to do essentially what they've been selected to do, which is their special talent that they've got. So, yeah, in a nutshell, Dinesh, I, I hope that covers uh, some of what you asked. Yeah, no, definitely. Tim, thanks so much. So, guys, just to sort of close off, we're going to go around the table and maybe we can start with Andy. And just for some advice to sort of, again, I know we touched on it a little bit in the beginning. But just to close off now, just a little bit of advice for sort of young professionals getting into the field and also wanting to get involved at a team environment. What advice have you got for these young professionals? Is that Andy, Andy or Andy and Andy? That's Andy, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) He likes to say I'm Andy too. So he's Andy one, I'm Andy Well, that's a truth. That's a truth. I was first here. I try to keep hearing it and you're in it, Andy. (laughs) I think... Like we've all mentioned that there's an element of where you start and being patient. And these days, if I speak specifically around, let's say, strength and conditioning now, when I started in 2004, 2005, it was like it was an an established profession, but it wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. So you could say it's a little bit of a saturated market and it's hard to break into. And that would be a consistent theme I'm hearing across people all over the world asking about maybe what they can do. I think the simple matter is you have to, obviously there's going to be sacrifices maybe, you just got to get coaching. I I would say the nuts and bolts of S&C and these days it does branch out differently because people's minds go into what's now known as a performance world and there's a holistic way of thinking or maybe they're a crossover between a medical and an S&C background or maybe they're just a pure outright gym coach. But the nuts and bolts of it comes sort of on the floor practically. So are you utilizing your time as and when you can give it to make sure you are just coaching because that is where you are learning but you're engaging with people that way you're understanding how people move you're potentially dealing with different injuries you're then probably crossing over with someone in a different profession so that's the first and foremost thing is just to be coaching and i'm talking s and c now alongside that is in my view don't be looking too far ahead i think if you're the right person, you're well-mannered, you care about what you're doing as a profession, which is ultimately trying to make someone better in whatever sport they're doing, at some point, the right people will know you're doing the right thing. And then the right, the, the good things for you and the opportunities will come off the back of that. Um, and, and that's my genuine belief as a person. And I think the, 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 other, the, la- the last thing I'll say more around S&C is there's so many people now relating to what Tim was talking about in data collection and how it's used and what they should be understanding. And Tim summed it up nicely because it gives you one piece of the puzzle. And when you've got a team of people working in a professional environment, it can be utilized in the right way to make sure that there's whatever method of performance you want to roll out for that week or phase. But when you're starting off, you aren't really going to understand, or probably you're not really going to understand the context to it and how it can really help going forward and all the different multi-facets to come into it so it isn't the be all and end all it's a part of, of what you are doing so i think taking all that into account when you're starting off take your nuts and bolts and what you're going to do and what you're going to focus on and understand that one thing isn't going to fix all it actually it just fits in within either multi-departments or multi-ways of looking in in performance it's not going to be the one thing that that solves it all so i guess the context is key with data yeah no thank you so much andy that's some wise words. So I think, Doc, in summary from my side is exactly what Andy and most of the colleagues have spoken about. Getting your hands dirty. 
definitely used to call it being in the trenches. Avail yourself. I think I've mentioned it before as well. Just avail yourself. Opportunities are there. And as Andy has mentioned, the, the field of strength and conditioning is growing. And there's a bigger, well, there's a bigger market, I believe. And there's a bigger demand uh, for SNCs around. The understanding of what your role is going to be at a particular stage may not be always there. But I look at the South African context and I just say in one sporting code, just rugby, you get schools that are now hiring or employing strength and conditioning coaches. You get it. Then the clubs, you get varsity cup. You've got the women's game that's growing. So there are all these opportunities to get involved in. Please, anywhere, get yourself involved because that's where you learn. That's where you pick up certain things that you can't necessarily apply from theory directly because of resources, because of budgets and so forth. But that's where you learn to harness your skill and just become better uh, at your profession. Definitely do that. And that would be my advice. The opportunities are definitely growing. Make sure you're part of that. And I think just in final, what anyone mentioned about, you never know who's watching, one, and you also need to give whatever team that you are involved in, give it your best, give it everything you've got. I used to have this thing when I was at Peck, and I used to say, my team might be lying middle of the log as an under 21 Curry Cup side, but am I looking at everything as if I would have been at the box? If I were with the spring box, am I still giving this team what I would be giving them? Because you're not necessarily just going to make a step up when you maybe bake it to a professional setup if you're fortunate to, to get there. But wherever the space that you are in, give it everything you do have and the right people at the right times, sometimes it's players, as we mentioned, sometimes it's coaches, sometimes it's administrators that, that just see the impact and the manner that you conduct yourself and apply yourself to a particular team that you never know where you might find that they become your reference at a higher level. So give it everything and avail yourself. No, thanks so much, Tim. Renee? Yes, I'm, gonna, I'm going to summarize it and say that if you're working in a team environment, it's very difficult to working in a, a clinical setting. You as a physiotherapist, you have to understand your coach's philosophy and the team ethos. Don't work in any team environment, whether it's at school level or club level or at any level, if winning's not important to you. And my favorite one, I always say to young physios, is that treat all players as if they are World Cup winning captains. And be authentic with yourself, with your team. If you are female, don't feel you have to be, you have to just encompass masculine energy, still wear your lipstick if you have to. You guys are not laughing when I say this, but and always be hungry to learn as much and be curious and understand as much as what's going on with every other member in your medical team and in your management team. Yeah, that's me. Naren, thanks so much. I was laughing. I knew you were. (laughs) I just don't want to make it audible, but now it is audible. (laughs) Naren, thanks so much. And you're in? Hey, Janice, I'd like to just summarize it in uh, three things for me. Firstly, is the clinical aspect. Learn and know your clinical skills and understand it. I think that's your base for being a medical professional. And then understand the game that you get involved in, irrespective of rugby, football, volleyball, whatever, hockey, and then know the dynamics, the flow and the injuries. That will be my first uh, base. And then number two, you're not alone. You're a team member, uh, part of a medical team. You're a team member, part of a management team. So you need to be willing, willing to listen, willing to share and willing to uh, adapt. Uh, that will be my second part. And, and, and thirdly is that remember, uh, we all contribute and uh, the athlete comes first. The athlete is a center stage, so give your all and uh, work as a team that that person can perform on the day. Cheers, man. Thanks so much, Andy. Jerome? Thanks, man, Janice. I think, yeah, everyone's touched on it well. I just think, for me, you've got your personal journey. Try and stay true to that. But one of Clint's things that he always says is also remember to enjoy it. And I think the points that that each one has touched on are are just vitally important. It's 
But as soon as you you reflect on that, this is a journey. People like to say have a thick skin and all that stuff. I say take things personally because you take pride in what you do. Take it personally. Put everything you've got into it because you know what I mean. The you've got to, it's got to be an all or nothing journey sometimes. And they have things on the outside because again, sports medicine for me, what I've learned is it's never it's never just that you can do one thing and hope that you advance financially from a career perspective, but you know, put your targets down, put your goals down, and then think more as well about other people. Because again, when I came into it, I came into this rugby place with people that were my heroes. I mean, for, you see a Brian Albana, you go crazy because it's like, dude, I used to watch this guy in varsity. When you come in there, guys like that, when they speak and you listen to the things they say, or, or a Rassi comes in and he speaks and he says certain things. One of the things that I do always or try and remember is you want to leave the jersey in a better place than what you found it. So don't forget to enjoy that journey, but also just take take yourself serious. Take it personally. Take yourself to a higher level. In that, remember there's enough space for all of you in the sun to shine. No, Jerome, thank you. Thank you so much for that there. Yeah, and I think just closing off on leaving the jersey in a better place, I think all five of you guys are definitely leaving the jersey in a better place. And you guys are definitely mentors to a lot of us in the rugby space, a lot of professionals in the various spaces, physios, doctors, SNCs, and a lot of people look up to you guys. So again, thank you guys so much for just making the time this morning to chat about your journey and just some of the work that you guys do. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sinesha. Thanks all. Thanks, Sinesha.